artist Dave McKenzie and curator Adrian Edwards. Um, uh, so Mackenzie has been invited by Adrian to compose a special text-based performance for 154, um, which is being performed at intervals throughout the fair. Uh, this conversation explores in further depth the project as an expression of the influence of printmaking on the artist's approach to multidisciplinary performance. Um, Adrian Edwards is a New York City-based curator, scholar, and writer with a focus on artists of the African diaspora and the global south. Uh, she's a curator at Performa and a curator at large at the Walker Art Center. Adrian is also a PhD candidate in performance studies at New York University, where she is a Corgan doctoral fellow. Uh, her research crosses visual and time-based art, experimental dance, critical race theory, feminist theory, and post-structuralist philosophy. She has curated and co-organized performances and exhibitions with numerous artists, including Rashid Johnson, Karimi Weems, Derek Adams, um, Chimaranga, Juliana Huxtable, among many others. Um, Edwards is a contributor to um, many monographic and thematic exhibition catalogs, um, that, and she is uh, also uh, a frequent contributor to art journals, including Art Forum, Art in America, Aperture, um, and Spike Art Quarterly, um, just to name a few. Uh, she's currently organizing an exhibition and catalog entitled Blackness in Abstraction for Pace Gallery, which opens in the summer of 2016. Um, born in Kingston, Jamaica, Dave McKenzie lives and works in Brooklyn. He received a BFA in printmaking from the University, from the university of the Arts in Philadelphia and attended the Skowhegan School of Painting. Uh, recent performances include Darker Than the Moon, Smaller Than the Sun at the Studio Museum in Harlem in 2014, and All the King's Horses, None of His Men at Third Streaming New York in 2013. Uh, recent exhibitions of his include Glenn Ligon, Encounters and Collisions at Nottingham Contemporary in the UK in 2015, um, Pants Full of Hope, Pockets Full of Adventure, or Don't Call Me uh, Jesus at uh, Gallery Vine Lukacs in Berlin, Germany, um, uh, the Whitney Biennial in 2014 of the, at the Whitney Museum of American Art, and the New Museum Triennial, uh, the Ungovernables in 2014, among several others. So um, please join me in welcoming our uh, speakers. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. That was such a nice introduction. And uh, in terms of thank yous, I really want to thank um, Koyo, who uh, is the very reason that we're even here today. Uh, she had the foresight to invite me to curate a program as part of the fair, and I um, want to express my gratitude to her for being so visionary. And then I'd like to thank Taria and Gabriella from 154, who've done such a fantastic job with the fair. And uh, thank you so much for, her, for all you've done to bring this to New York, and it's it's really quite fantastic to take it all in. This fair has a very particular energy that is unique and it was a pleasure for us to be here. Um, and then I'd like to also really express my most heartfelt thanks to Dave for taking this on. Um, we decided to do this relatively on short notice. Uh, usually when I'm commissioning artists for performance. It's like a two-year process, maybe a year and a half to cut it close. And we, I came, I wrote Dave and I said, the subject line was, I've got an idea. <laughs> and Dave, and it was really recent, and Dave was like, okay. And so I, I, I kind of pitched this concept to you. I thought maybe what we could do is talk about 
um, what is downstairs, how that came to be, and then we could go from there and maybe look back into some of the work that Dave has done in the past. Dave and I have worked together before. Um, the third streaming piece that you mentioned was actually in the bio in the intro was actually part of the Performa 13 biennial. But I've been watching your work since like 2001 when I saw it at Freestyle. So maybe we'll take a moment and, and go back and look at some different um, approaches that you've taken uh, that, that are exemplified in the work downstairs, but very different. Um, so where to start? I mean, I, when I sent that email, then you wrote me back and then I said, well, let's talk. And um, we had a conversation and I said, you know, this fair is kind of enacting this thing that I wanted to situate historically, um, in that it was kind of a fair that was about art from the continent, but was shown in London and then presented in New York beginning last year. So for me, the fair itself was enacting this kind of diasporic vision, um, was kind of like operating in that dimension, and I was truly um, intrigued by that. And then the other part of it was this notion of enterprise, right? The, the, and so that led me to um, Marcus Garvey immediately. Like I just thought about Garvey. And then so I was like, well, I don't know, maybe there's, let me, and so I went to Negro with a Hat, a fabulous biography that Colin Grant wrote about him and realized that Garvey came to New York originally in 1916. And so taking that as a point of departure, understanding that Garvey was the original um, real thinker with a particular uh, take on Pan-Africanism, that that take was deeply not only politicized, but also about economics and financial empowerment. and. I was kind of wanting to situate the fair in that context, right? Like that was conceptually an interesting point of departure. So this, what you're hearing is what I said to Dave. And Dave said, huh, <laughs> let me think about that. And, and then, what'd you think about that? Yeah, so, um, I mean, on one hand, I thought, well, just the fact that you are bringing these ideas to the possibility of something, I got really excited. I mean, one, I had this idea for making uh, this kind of uh, printmaking in space, I'll call it. But when you started talking about um, Garvey, I just got really excited about thinking what that might mean and what kind of relationships or connections could be drawn, even in really um, uh, ways that I think were just sort of touching, you know, touching the surface but how that might just structure something, right? So, you know, 1916, 2016, um, I was born in Jamaica and left very early uh, when I was about two or three, and that's obviously very different than, than Garvey, and we are separated by all this time, and yet we have similar bodies, and um, thinking about Garvey and progress, and these, uh, I'm not an expert on Garvey, but thinking about um, Garvey in terms of um, the sort of uh, journeys that he undertook 
right? Um, Garvey goes to England at one point, and this, is, this was a place and is a place that's been really important to my family. Um, I was telling Adrian that a lot of my family, my grandfather sent uh, a lot of my aunts and uncles to England. It was a place where they could have a kind of better life. And my mother being the youngest, she ends up in America in a, in a different way, in a different time. Um, so we have that, and then um, Colin Grant's bio on Garvey opens up with something that's just really, maybe it's really well known, but I didn't know it. Uh, Garvey uh, opens up the newspaper and sees essentially his obituary. And uh, Garvey was one also early in life, uh, uh, like a newspaper printer. And I just was really struck by all of these kind of random but interesting and fruitful possibilities for um, something to kind of overlap something else that doesn't necessarily have to do with it. Like the fair doesn't necessarily have to do with Garvey by any means. And yet there are ways that we can think about um, history and bodies and the continent and, you know, sort of movement, I think. Like I started when I was writing these various texts, I kept thinking about progress uh, because especially, um, you know, Garvey is someone I think where, and this is true of, of many minorities and, and, and people trying to struggle with the way society is, is um, seeing them, that you know, progress gets, becomes physical. And as I write these various texts that are really short, my body aches. And it aches because the shoes that I'm using to print this text, they're really heavy. Um, they're like five pounds. And so to me, thinking like how I could feel not only that ache, but how that ache had something to do with progress, whether it's progressing or, or progressing on a, you know, a page, right? Trying to go from the top to the bottom um, and how moving through space, moving through a page, moving through a text, moving through the world, how progress and all its frustrations and missteps and blockages might be made not only kind of mental, but physical. Uh, and so for me, writing in this way has become, um, yeah, it's deeply physical. Um, there's a really great moment early on in uh, Garvey's life where he writes a sort of sensational text. And uh, he, I think he, it seems to be like maybe he thinks it's going to like propel him. And it sort of goes, it, people really respond to it, but it doesn't really go much further than that at the beginning. And so he ends up going back to Jamaica for uh, I think a lot of different reasons. But this moment where he's a uh, kind of assistant in, um, this, uh, I guess, print, this magazine journal, and he gets to write this article finally, and it's like about to go someplace, and he gets this incredible reaction, and then nothing from that. He's, he's essentially sent back to be just a kind of like gopher or whatever he was doing. Um, and so all those ways where I think progress and questions of this and that and placement, um, where they become physical, really attracted me. And there's something that I'm really trying to think about through doing the thing that I've been doing downstairs. And it's interesting because I realized this um, a few years ago when you were giving a talk at Columbia University. And uh, I, I think I asked a question about repetition in your work, which yes. I want to get to maybe a little bit later. Um, but you said to me, you said in answering the question that you got your degree in printmaking. And I like had an audible sigh when you <laughs> said that, right? Because it, it allowed me to go into the work in an entirely different way. I understood it differently. And you said that this piece 
that you've done over the last two days. So maybe we should explain what's sure, been happening, absolutely. actually, because everyone may not have been here over right. the course of um, days accumulation. Right. So the way the work functions is I made these or modified, really, these sneakers there, um, much like the sneakers I'm wearing. I encased them in rubber text blocks, and each sneaker has an individual letter on the bottom that can be inked up, much like you might ink up a, a woodblock print or you might ink up letterpress type so that I could essentially stamp out um, various texts through putting on and taking off individual sneakers. I use my body as the, the press, essentially, by pressing. I love when Dave explains things, because it sounds so like rational and like straightforward <laughs> and easy. Okay, so you had to go find 26 pairs right. of sneakers of some similar... Yes. How did you find them? Um, so I started with one pair, <laughs> naturally, I guess. Why that sneaker? Because you like them? or uh, No, you know, these are actually not the sort of sneakers that I normally wear. I normally wear uh, these blue Adidas. And I'm just, uh, when I find sneakers that work for me, I just sort of buy the same sneaker over and over again. And uh, I was looking for one sneakers that were the right price, because <laughs> I was going to be getting quite a few of them. And then... In the work, there are these technical questions that I'm still working on. So, you know, I, I didn't think about all these things initially, but like what kind of sole, right? How does the kind of rubber that I'm using meet the sole? Um, the, the, the texture of a sole, the, like, the way it interlocks with the rubber, um, these various things, and some work better than others. And if you think about the way shoes are made and various shoes, they're, they're similar often, but they have really important differences. So these Converse, Converse that I'm wearing, for instance, they're not particularly flat. So they're actually fairly round, and the front of the shoe kind of goes up like that, which isn't a big deal walking around uh, daily life, but it actually means, one, um, the kind of way that the rubber was poured into the mold that encased the shoe. Uh, I just had to do a couple of different things technically, right? Versus the Vans that I also use, which are primarily skateboarding shoes, and so they're super flat on the whole. Uh, so it's like a really simple kind of thing, but each one does and acts a little bit differently, and each one sort of interlocks with the rubber in a different way. Uh, and so as I went around, I would just go to various sneaker stores, and the interesting thing is, you can buy out of like the number of sneakers really quickly, right? They don't like you could be like, I want five pairs of black vans, and they're like, we only have four. And I didn't know why, but I was really embarrassed to be buying this number of sneakers. I probably should have just bought them online, I guess. But uh, I just felt like like money bags all of a sudden coming out of the store with like a like a. I just was super embarrassed, and so I would make multiple trips, and sometimes I would go to a store and they wouldn't have that sneaker anymore. And so I'd try to go to another one. I just would get kind of like frustrated. But um, that's sort of where it started, like cost of sneaker and shape of sole. And then how did you decide? Did you know you wanted translucent rubber? Like how? I'm just really interested yeah. in the object. I mean, we have multiple objects actually down there. But there's something about these blocks that look so light and like you know malleable and then you pick one up and i'm like oh my goodness yeah because yesterday when you said yeah it hurts a little bit i was like 
how could it hurt? And then I picked one up and I was like, oh. Yeah. Um, so I'm interested in how you decided, like, that rubber, the, the you know. Yeah, so um, that was the first rubber that I ordered, and I was just really fixated by it. Mm -hmm. So the first pair that I made, uh, I made a black pair, and then I made a white pair, and I was just really fixated by the, its objectness, mm -hmm. that I thought that um, it just was sort of, there was like an offness about it mm -hmm. that I really liked it as an object and its weightiness and the fact that it was a sort of brick and the brick was not only kind of heavy and weighty and made me a taller human being which uh, I'm, I'm fairly short so I kind of like to sort of step up a little bit but that the that brick had um, an incredible physicality to it as an object so even when I was thinking of making it and trying to test these out I kept thinking I could technically go shorter Right? I could like find ways of making like using less rubber, but I was just really attracted to its thickness. Um, and so, and the amber color was like something encased in amber. And I was really um, pleased with the possibility of that to essentially be encasing my foot, to be encasing the shoe, to have uh, an encased text that could produce something else. And you, I mean, there's something about the piece where it feels very, um, well, I want to talk about, it feels very provisional. I mean, in that it's like the start of something, yeah. you know? It's right. it's both precise, like formally in many ways, it has this precision to mm -hmm. it, right? And then yet, it's completely open to chance. Yes. Um, do you want to talk about like why, how, was that something you were thinking about? Sure. Or, yeah. yeah, so that's really true. I mean, I think to go back to printmaking a little bit, not only the question of repetition, but um, learning various ways of making prints, you end up with a lot of material, right? And it's really great because I think you're often encouraged to experiment with that material, but then there's always also this moment where you're trying to get something right. And by right, it generally means a sort of beautiful kind of image. Like there's a really, there's much like a photograph, like maybe like printing a, a black and white photograph. There's kind of ideas that attach themselves to the kind of perfect print, whether it's an Ansel Adams style zone system print or, or what have you. And one of the things that happens is like to break from that logic is not necessarily encouraged. It's encouraged in experimenting, right? Like, okay, go ahead, make a mess. But I think you're supposed to come back with a, um, a perfect image in some ways, right? We have, from printmaking, you often have like the master printer, the printer who will produce prints for you, uh, whose hands you can use. And what I liked about the shoes in some ways is there were a lot of things that I know I could change technically to make a more accurate letterpress print, so to speak, but I became less interested in them. So it's both like messy and um, yeah, it's precision is in the, the act, right? That the, the image that's produced is really not precise. And especially doing it um, in this version, working on the floor, there are all these things that happen. So there are, there's a place on the floor where as it goes out the um, sort of like the loading dock, the floor slants, and it produced a really interesting line on the text, but that's, that's by accident. Or I started, you know, I walk on the print, so that produces a line, and the ink smudges, and there's overlaps, 
but even within that, it, there's, you know, there's, there's, there are limits still, right? There are limits to how far I think the image will go. Yeah. And I noticed when you were doing it, it was like um, yesterday, this was like when, because we pretty much, Dave did the performance between noon and two o'clock and then from four o'clock to six o'clock yesterday and today. And I was really intrigued by your choreography in a way, which you could have missed if you weren't like maybe paying attention. Um, and what I mean by that is there is, there seemed to me to be a loose pattern mm -hmm. around uh, selecting the object, the shoe, um, the way in which you put it on, which was kind of very deliberately done and then tying the lace, and then a little hop. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes a little flight, you right. know, like he would stand on one leg and kind of like waver a little bit. But I noticed there were these different movements that you were doing, and then you would quickly drop and untie it so fast, and then deliberate on what you were gonna do next. Right. And. I'm asking that question in relation to, did you have, did you predetermine what the words would be? Do they, they seem to me to be a kind of, not poetry, more haiku mm. in a way. Um, yeah, if you would talk about how you came to the language and, and literally the choice of words and, and your yes. making of them. Sure, so in terms of the movement, I've noticed with myself, because I, I don't know anything about dance, but I'm, I'm, I'm like sometimes interested in dance. I wish I knew more. Uh, I wish I had an education in dance, and maybe that'll come in the future. So at Third Streaming, uh, I did this performance using tap shoes, and I've used tap shoes one other time at the Studio Museum. And one of the things that, uh, tap shoes that sort of came in a couple of different ways, but I don't know how to tap which was obvious during the performance. Uh, but I do think that as I would try to learn some small move or movement, really basic things like, you know, shuffle step or whatever, that there were times when I was doing it and I would realize like, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it. And then the moment I thought I, I had it, my legs would just like sort of cross and I'd fall down. And doing the work today was a little bit like, that. there were moments where I felt, oh, my body is doing what I, it needs to be doing. And so I could make these motions or I could take time to kind of breathe in or the, the text had been printed so I could just sort of like onto the next one, let's hunt around for the next word because things are arranged loosely. Um, but that's sort of how the movement came. It was more kind of feeling it out. It was very much like when I was tapping, when I felt like, oh, I've got it. And again, the moment where I felt like I had it, I lost it. Uh, as to the words themselves, I would sometimes start with a word or two that I liked, a sentence, like, like three words maybe, that were interesting to me, and then try to go from there without a particular destination. Um, in the last, I don't know how many years, maybe seven, I want to say, and it's just randomly throwing seven out there, um, the sound of words has become really important to me. Like, um, in some of the early works, I would be really descriptive with the titles. Like, I made this piece, it's a pinata that's a, a self-portrait, and it functions just like a pinata. It gets, it gets beaten open by uh, 
luckily in this case by kids, which is really, I think, a, an amazing thing for me. And the, the piece is just called Self-Portrait Pinata. Right? It's like self-portrait, pinata, <laughs> done. Um, and then somehow I just would like fall in love with the way words sounded together. Like I, all of a sudden, uh, and you can see it downstairs, this is, the, begins the second uh, print that I made. It starts, when smoke butters bread. And I just kept saying it to myself, and I realized I really loved it, and I didn't know what it meant. And that's sort of lately, I feel like I'm, I fall into that. Like when smoke, that's where the, also the repetition comes in, um, where I feel like I can hear myself saying something and repeating it and feeling like it's growing, and what it means right now will change uh, tomorrow. But like for me, like when smoke butters bread, it won't make any sense, but it's a process of becoming that happens inside out, not outside in, maybe. Very much like I keep, um, when I think about it, I make this kind of gesture where I'm like, right, you know, like, I, I can't really explain it, but the gesture is one of becoming where you can feel it happening, right? And it's not only based on um, outside forces, like it's, a, it's an internal process somehow. But that doesn't, it doesn't make sense, but that's what I think when I think of what happens when smoke butter's bread. Yeah, yesterday when you were doing your dance, <laughs> I wrote down nonsense, mm -hmm. babble, stutter. Yeah, in um, response to what I was perceiving that you were doing. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. It's kind of um, I like I like stutter actually a lot. Um, when I was a student, one of the few talks that I really remember is this talk by Vito Acconci. And when Akanchi came to school, and maybe he's done this before, maybe he does it a lot, but um, he gave this lecture and he stuttered the whole time. And I, I didn't know that much about him. And I was like, oh my God, I don't, I don't know. It was amazing though. I was like the one, I just remember it really deeply for the things he said and the way he delivered um, the text. And Akanchi was really interesting to me for a variety of reasons uh, about I think like experimentation and not necessarily having um, all the technical skills, right? I mean, like from poetry to performance, uh, and this piece where he makes uh, this bite mark piece where he like prints his um, flesh, you know, his bitten flesh. Um, but thinking about that like sense of the start and the stop and the pickup, right? Like a record that maybe skips and like a part of a song that replays. Um, that, that sense of stuttering, I really like a lot that how a thing kind of has its own rhythm, right? And not only that has its own rhythm, but a rhythm that is not your rhythm. You know. And there's something in your work, too, that I, I um, always find intriguing that has to do with this obsession with exhaustion. I mention it to you all yeah, the time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's like uh, there's something about the stutter combined with this, this aim toward, it seems like a, a determination that you're somehow both conscious of and unconscious of mm -hmm. because you're so casual, mm -hmm. you know? It's like you, <laughs> you know, that whole installation downstairs is so kind of like, huh, you know, I, I've, I've got these, like, beautiful objects that are clearly very thought out, but, you know, it's just ordinary paper thrown on the floor, and, yeah, I'm just gonna, like, see what happens. Yeah. But yet, in the, you set up a set of in almost discreet or privately, I don't know how you do it, but that will ultimately lead you to a point 
of exhaustion. I've seen you do this yeah. multiple times. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's a really great thing to point out to me because I think you're right. And at the same time, it's strange to me because I'm not that interested in exhaustion. And so it leads me at the moment to think a couple of things, like maybe I just, I easily exhaust myself <laughs> as a possibility. Um, but I do think that, you know, what I'm aiming for with some of the work is really the sense where the body knows a thing that the mind doesn't know. And I think that I'm really good at obsessing over the work after the work. Like there's works that I've made that I think, I know this work really well. It doesn't mean I know all about it, right? It doesn't mean that I can't be um, taught something by another about the work, but I think about it all the time. Like for me, I'm really obsessed with the idea of keeping artworks alive, not only my own work, but other people's works. Like how to rethink and keep thinking about a work. Like my least favorite thing is when a work dies when you go to a museum or a gallery or whatever and you've seen a thing a number of times and you feel like it's dead. Like, I hate that. And so I'm always obsessed with how do I keep my own work alive by rethinking it, representing it, but trying to re-understand it. And so to the kind of thing about exhaustion, it's like that mental space is really impressive, but I'm also um, curious about the mental space or the actual space or the metaphor of space or whatever about the body. Like, how does your body know things before your head seems to know things, right? Like, what is this thing that I'm feeling at this moment being totally exhausted and aching? Like, what is my body telling me beyond the fact that I'm tired and I, like, lifted heavy things? And I think the body has something to say about who you are and what's going on with you. And maybe that's how I understand exhaustion. Like, you know something has happened. Yeah, it's interesting because the way I think about exhaustion is through... Deleuze, right? And I think that might be why I keep using it in relation mm -hmm. to what I think about what you're doing, which is that it's not just tired, mm -hmm. right? It's actually so far beyond tired that it just positions you to start again. Yeah. It's just, uh, just like how the stutter is just an indication right. of a becoming, of a thing that's to come. Yeah, right? I like that. That's really So there's I just like a, that. there's a, I don't know, a shift there, right? Mm -hmm. And this, like, revisiting, um, rethinking, reprocessing of work that you've done in the past, to me, is this, this constant circulation around a concept. I mean, y you refer to yourself as a conceptual artist, or do others? How do you feel about that term? Um, so it's not a term that I use, but... Um Maybe I use it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm happy if others use it. It's fine. I've, I've been called many things. Most of them I'm okay with, I think. Um, no, I mean, I think for me, often, the idea, of course, is a fairly central thing within the work. Like, its form is important, but um, yes, the idea is, is, is probably more important for me, honestly. Uh, I think in some ways, I don't know that I, I have a great term, but I'm, I'm interested in actually not only the idea, but actually the anecdote. I'm interested in the moments where a thing that is made or seen or observed becomes a story 
and how stories end up standing in for other things or stories get retold and stacked on top of other stories. You know, if we think of our lives as stories or the kind of incidents of our lives as stories, that something sometimes small happens, but it takes on this amazing significance, uh, even if it's just happenstance. Like somehow we identify an incredibly large world based on something small. And that small thing could be a eureka moment. Um, but I'm interested actually in the way that stories function to stand in for really large concepts. You know, they seem to hold this really important <coughs> position. Maybe we can look at some video. Um, shall we start with the freestyle piece? Yeah, so if we could start with Edward and me, that'd be, that'd be great. This is the first piece I ever saw of Dave's work and was like mesmerized and um, by it.
It's great. So, Dave, um, yeah. <laughs> he survived that. So, Dave, um, this was shot in 2000? Yes. And while you were at Skowhegan? Yes, right. So, so tell us how you came to this, <laughs> this piece. Uh, well, my memory is a little faulty, but um, so I had, obviously I was a printmaking major in school, but I was always attracted to other things, especially towards the end of my uh, college life. So I became interested in video and um, I was just curious about performing. And I mean, you know, for me, I felt like I learned a little bit about performance through images, the way I think a lot of us do early on. So I remember being in the library of our school and just opening the book and seeing this work, much of it from the 60s and 70s, and being just like shocked. And the work felt like it was from the future. And I, it took me a long time to reconcile myself to that fact that this work that was, you know, several decades old felt really fresh to me. And I just remember thinking, like, I can't go upstairs where the print studio was and just make a print after someone has done whatever it is to their bodies, to the landscape, using their body in the world in a political way and, you know, just a kind of way that is just so sharp and troubling and, like, fertile. And so I was, like, looking for ways to think about how I might perform. And, you know, this work certainly has that kind of exhaustion in the, in the most sort of literal way. But I also wanted to play around with editing. So I, uh, at Skowhegan, I learned a little bit about editing video and thinking what did it mean, not only this kind of question of performance and documentation, but performance and the edit, and the edit and the restaging and the redoubling and how to perform myself with myself through um, through others and through other characters. So that's some of what I was thinking and how actually to, to take over a location, right? And how to use location as site. Um, Where did you shoot this? So uh, Skowhegan's in a very, is a very rural kind of community. So late at night, I, I got on a bicycle and I rode down uh, the hill, so to, you know, to this uh, like shopping center where I think there was like a Walmart and like a stop and shop or something. And I used the grocery store um, as a kind of stage for, for my work. So you set up a camera. Yeah, I just set up a camera and, and went from there. And do you think about it as performance, as mediated performance, or a video work that just happens to feature performance? That's, that's a really, really great question. And sometimes I'm, I'm unclear myself and whether or not, like I think this particular work I think of as a performance. And when I was talking about the body knowing, not only did I ache the next day, which is nothing in and of itself. What I always think back is how I, like waking up, something happened, like I didn't realize that was going to happen. And so for me, thinking about the question of it being a performance or a video or a performance for a video or what have you, what I really remember thinking with this work is just that it's a performance, it's a performance that's all about my body, right? Like I just remember feeling. And so the act of editing and the doubling was really important to me and the work conceptually, I think. Uh, 
but what I really remember is that I ate and that kind of sense of waking up and not being able to move. And so, yeah, I think in, mostly I think of it as a performance. Like some works, it's very much a document of a performance. So there's a work that I do where I, or did, where I walked around 125th Street and Harlem in general dressed as, uh, or wearing a Bill it. Clinton Let's mask. Show it. Yeah, we can we can show uh, like a clip of it. Yeah. Um, so it's called the uh, WSO on the file. Maybe just like a minute or two. Yeah. And for me, th that's a video. Yeah. That's a video of a performance. The performance was a year-long project, and this is just a document of one day of the performance. And so, yeah, it's very much a video of a performance. <laughs> What's so uncanny about this video now is, you know, of course, this was made in 2004. Yes. So Clinton had, I think, moved his office to Harlem in 2001. Although by the time you made this video, he'd actually never been seen, actually, in Harlem, which is just hysterical. And I, we didn't discuss this. I went and did all this. I looked it up. I was like, oh, so is, and of course, the foundation's office is not, there any longer. Um, it's like, you know, somewhere in Midtown, but the whole history of how Clinton ended up on 125th Street, the fact that it's because he got lambasted for wanting to pay one of the highest rents for an office in Midtown. So it was just this total like saving his ass move, maneuver to, to go to 125th Street. And here we are with Hillary um, up for election with I, cu I couldn't help but remark how across the country what's really kept her in the race has been the Latino and black populations in terms of voting in, in these primaries. So what were you thinking about when you made this piece? Yeah. So one, I was at the Studio Museum doing a year-long residency and just really struck by the kind of vibrancy of Harlem and looking out the window and seeing this you know, sort of really beautiful street scene. 
And I was just reading the Times one day, and I saw this incredible article that said, I think the title was something like, Dear Mr. Clinton, your Harlem neighbors need to see you more often. And I thought, do they? <laughs> you know, like, I don't, I mean, you know, I was just sort of like, are you sure? And, you know, I think it's so interesting to think back on that time because I always point to that kind of uh, joke about Clinton being the first black president, which is, I think, a really complicated uh, joke that, you know, jokes tend to do this kind of thing where they expose something, you know, uh, something deep and painful sometimes when that's a really kind of meaty thing where we laugh, but also I find that the laughter is sort of uncomfortable, you know, by like what definition of blackness, by whose definition, uh, to what end, uh, all these sorts of things. And so I just took it upon myself that if this indeed was true, that this image of this man was being missed, that I would make the image visible in some way, although obviously comically. Um, and so I just decided to occasionally, as I was working in the studio or um, as you know, the day went along, I would just periodically step out of the studio and walk around Harlem dressed as you know, a, a version of, of Bill Clinton. And um, you know, one of the things that I always remember, it's like the first time I go out, someone said to me, and I always bring this up because I think it's really somehow telling, he said to me, he said, he said do you really want to be white that badly? And I realized, I was like, I don't know how to answer this question, right? And, um, but that for me was really important in telling. And actually, I love the kind of weird reversal of wearing this white man's face who is the first black president. That, you know, my own blackness was like obscured by this other projected blackness. But it, it also, illuminates like this thing that can be also really subtle in some of your work. Um, like I was thinking about with the multiple dolls that you created, which you can talk about, but the fact that humor is there, but it's not only deadpan, but like slightly subversive. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe the bobbles are a good example in some ways. So I made this piece where it's a multiple in, I don't know, I've made it like, I don't know, at this point I probably have a couple thousand. Uh, it's a bobblehead of, of in my likeness. And initially I would wear a, another large kind of paper mache head and as people would enter the space that I was presenting the work, I would hand them this little white box and there would be the name of the piece, which was While Supplies Last. And in the box there's this bobblehead and it looks more or less like me. And uh, I have a friend who's a really uh, brilliant artist, and she says, you know, this is a really difficult piece to have. That, like, you give this thing away, and it's you, but then, like, I put it on my bookshelf, and people come over, and they're like, who is this? And it's like, I've got this, like, little black man on my bookshelf. And I was like, yeah, you know, I think that's true. <laughs> and I feel in some ways, like, I always give it as a gift, and we think about gifts and burden a, a lot, but that it functions in this really strange way where I think it's just a form that already exists. There are plenty of bobbleheads. I'm sure there's a bobblehead of Clinton and Obama and many like sports figures, but to make a bobblehead of myself is wrong. I'm, you know, I'm not famous, I'm not recognizable. People who see it on your desk or on your bookshelf won't know who I am, and it just says Dave. It's a bobblehead, a little statue, a little figure and it potentially recalls a number of, you know, dark-skinned figures. And to me, I think 
this question of permission sometimes in the work and like who's allowed to make a joke or phrase a thing a certain way, like that's also what I'm interested in. That's where I think and hope the question of permission and um, yeah, allowing something to happen, that's where the humor, if there is any, uh, or the subversion of that, I think enters the work. Okay, I just want to show one more. So which one, Dave? Beautiful one has come, or old man sarcophagus? Um, if it's okay, can we show a uh, camera? What's going on, Dave? Uh, oh, in the work? <laughs> yeah. Um, so the work, as, the, as you can probably read, hopefully those of you in the back could read, uh, I ended up in this uh, program in Berlin, the American Academy there, which I'll uh, spare you the, the in sort of ins and outs of the American Academy in Berlin. But uh, Henry Kissinger, as well as many other politicians, you could maybe make out uh, the back of Bill Clinton's head, uh, if we got far enough. And, you know, thinking about where the work is at this moment, especially, or sort of even from uh, work like We Shall Overcome, I'm often interested in how the work becomes platform-oriented. Like, okay, so in the work downstairs, how to produce a text that brings my body into it and makes the body coming into it visible. And in camera, 
I just was in this moment where I realized for the people around me in particular, many of them who had sort of lived through, um, you know, the Vietnam War and who had a real kind of sense of Kissinger as a site, right, that this was a difficult moment. Their politics and his politics don't line up. And I felt like I wanted to think about that where um, I don't use, like, I, I feel like in the work I try not to make other people images in the work, or objects rather. I really try not to make anyone else an object. But I felt a kind of permission in this moment to pick up my camera and use it as a tool to distance myself from um, someone and something. And so for me, the camera and the sense of it as an obstacle between us became uh, an, an interesting barrier. So all these moments where Kissinger was, who couldn't care anything about uh, any of the people who were there actually as you know, thinkers, um, we, I, we, didn't have to, we didn't have to interact. That um, as he was being introduced to the fellows, he, they just said, oh, that's Dave over there. And I continued to just like, you know, rack focus on my camera. And it was just like, okay, Dave's doing his own thing. So the camera was visible to him. The camera was visible, uh -huh. yeah. And but this was when you were in the Academy, American Academy at Rome. In Berlin. This in one's Berlin. Berlin. Yeah, Berlin. Um, that's maybe, I don't know, 2010, maybe, something like that. Um, but how I think tools and relationships, like these relationships, even though it was just a handshake for my friends, the handshake was something else. I mean, this is to me is like the question of body. Mm -hmm. Like to touch this figure, this specter, that was like, that was, you know, I mean, that meant something, that just this like quick touch mm -hmm. to acknowledge something. Um, and I found that really fascinating and wanted, yeah, this moment or this place or this space to be created where I didn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. Or at least that was the hope, you know that I could have fled, certainly, I could have moved away, I could have hidden in my room, but also to have some other platform or tool to use as a negotiation between my body and this other body. Yeah. This work makes me think about, and then we'll open it up for, to see if people have questions, but it makes me think about a kind of reversal around ritual that I observe in your work. Like here, you're like, observing this ritual, right, that happens at the American Academy, no matter what city you're in, right? And yet ritual is something that seems deeply um, a part of your own creation of performance in particular, whether for video or, or live. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the ritual as well as, this goes back to the repetition, but, you know, to find to find the form, to find like, to find your steps. I mean, when I talk about not knowing anything about dance, not only is that true, but I, it's hard for me to imagine choreography. Like I can imagine an internal choreography. Um, sometimes with the performances, I know one or two things that I'm likely to do. Um, sometimes when I'm trying to come out with a text, I know one or two words, so to speak, but like, I don't know where it's going to go. And the ritual, I think, is one where not only do I make it up as I go along, but I try to fall in and out of some pattern. You know, I mean, this is also like the stuttering, the starting, the stopping. And to me, the kind of ritual where you can take all sorts of gestures, right, and reproduce them, restage them, slow them down, speed them up, um, like they can become a 
pattern for you, right? Whether it's like the ritual of being an artist working in a studio, like, uh, you know, getting up at a certain time to like meditate, to do yoga, to work out, to read, to do whatever, to dream, like how we can turn the process of living into one where it's productive for us, but productive through our own necessity, right? It isn't like productive. We don't necessarily only punch a clock that we can ritualize all sorts of parts of our lives for ourselves. Are there any questions? It's okay if they're not, but, but ask me anything. Ask us anything. Yeah. Oh, um, so uh, the conversation about uh, printmaking and um, sort of like a, a ghost image or registered image um, and some of the metaphors that you use to think about imaging, um, it, it really brought to my mind like a quote, I think it's from a Gottman, thinking about like a gesture, you used that term recently, uh, just now, um, as like a communication of communicability and the gesture's relationship to language and voice and, and communication and um, you know, like a stutter or a shout or something like that, or the way I'm gesturing with my hand, which doesn't exactly like sort of convey any sort of um, sort of semantic content, but more sort of just like conveys a sense of, of something, a communication of communicability. Um, and I was interested if you have any thoughts on that, also in relationship perhaps to um, this whole kind of, um, you know, emerging academic canon of like thinking about, you know, opacity and illegibility in terms of like, not just um, political conversations about representation, but uh, specifically political conversations about like blackness and legibility and, and representation. Um, I mean, there's this massive canon of African-American cultural production focused on representation and figuration or something like that, um, and legibility or something. Like, is your work's focus and emphasis and return to the gesture um, thought through the idea of a communication of a communicability and, and just that? Um, is that in relationship at all to like some of those ideas about eligibility, you know, representation, a right to opacity? Um, long question, but That's since okay. I've kept yeah. it yeah. yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm up to it. I mean, maybe the way that I would think about it is a lot of the, I, I'm, I'm a teacher and I've been teaching at a lot of schools lately. And so there are a lot of questions just on a like, uh, faculty to students, administration to faculty level about questions around diversity. And that's a really like broad term, I think. But it made me think of what do we mean when we say diversity? Like um, there are certain things that seem to fall within those, in that like category, right? Diversity in class and race and gender and sexuality. And then I started to think about the fact that even for myself, diversity has limits. Like, I believe in diversity of opinion. I'm really interested in that. And yet at the same time, you know, thinking about certain things that are going on in college campuses, like um, in Texas and Georgia, you know, desire for uh, like the students and I guess faculty to be, to arm themselves, right? Uh, I certainly don't mean that when I think of diversity. Although I realize like someone does. And so this like question to me of um, legibility, it's one where I think we truly not only see each other, but we're constantly like looking and like finding the gaps. Like I think 
there are all these ways that we think we see each other or see the limits or parameters of knowledge, right? Like, okay, so I tend to think of diversity as a good, but like why? Why and how? And what do I really mean when I say that word? Or I know that I want to be taken seriously as a human being and not only considered like a black person, a black artist, but I also want to be considered that. Right, and so what does that mean? And how can I use the work to talk about all sorts of things that I don't have any business talking about or that are just touching the surface? Like, how can I take Adrian's invitation and thoughts about Garvey and even talk about Garvey when I'm not dealing with the complexity of Garvey's thought and the like success and failure of Garvey in the world, right? But at the same time, like for me, the kind of like question of um, legitimacy and legibility and representation is one where images keep being stacked upon one another, right? Like um, I had an interesting moment where I was in Chicago and seeing this, um, forgive me the, the exact details, this 80s show, right? And I was with um, this really uh, brilliant uh, historian, uh, Huey Copeland, and he was talking to a couple of his students and he was thinking, he was saying something, my memory might be a little bit off, but how if you don't know about a group of people today, like kind of like culture, subculture, because of the internet, internet in some ways it's like your fault. And I was really interested in this like kind of tension between accessibility in this way of being able to reach out into the world and know things about all sorts of people. And yet at the same time, like there, there's always these corners that we can't see. Right, and it's like, I love when the, the image gets brought forward, right? Like this isn't a thing that's in your like field of view normally, but now it enters it and it can re-enter. Like we can re keep rethinking like gender, right? Like gender keeps being rethought and has never stopped being thought and race keeps being thought and never stops being thought. And like to me, that's, that's the image that I actually align up with printmaking like you keep making images from the stone or the screen and even when they look the same they're actually different and at some point like the image becomes some other image or you need to re-ink the surface like that's that's actually the kind of way of image making that I'm I'm, I'm interested in sorry that wasn't a good answer but the, the question was really great I think that's and if no one has a question I think that's an amazing place to start to stop um, to start, because I have so much more to say. But um, Dave, thank you. Thank you for the last thank you. two days. Thank you so much. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you for being you. Thank you for coming. Thank you.